0: Oh, everybody's got a mic. Okay, let's have a seat and we'll get started let's with sing. the panel discussion. Let's sing. <laughs> a little, little do op number.
1: He's lead and we're back up. No,
0: I sing, I sing the bass line. Boop, <laughs> boop, boop, boop. Yeah, that's me. All right, uh, this is the panel discussion portion of our program, and I would invite you to uh, step up to these microphones up in front here. Uh, let's let's do that one at a time, please, so that we don't get a long line going down the aisle and frighten all of our our very kind speakers. Um, but I'm going to start off with a question for the panel, um, and uh, it, it, it it in fact, right, yeah. the question kind of came up a little bit earlier. But the question is, um, in a, in a faith, if you're if you're a, a worker or an executive in a workplace that's trying to be faith faith friendly, and I get the idea that that has to be. Open to a variety of faith traditions and not exclusively one faith. How do you reconcile that with the, the claims of exclusivity that go along with Christianity? Um, can you be a faith-friendly workplace and still, uh, you know, hang on to what you know we as Christians uh, understand to be a, a pretty unique way of approaching God?
2: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm going longer answer than that. The um... Yeah, a a, a corporation is not a house of worship. Uh, It's not about making uh, metaphysical truth claims. Uh, uh, They're producing goods and services and products, which people are willing to pay some money for, uh, and that's what it does. Uh, Houses of worship are in the business of articulating and understanding truth claims. Uh, uh, Big distinction. So companies should not try to become churches, um, and vice versa for that matter, too. Uh, So I, I think there's no intellectual consistency. There's no faith inconsistency with being, let's say, a CEO or a head of a company or a small business and saying you want to be a faith-friendly employer, respect all people as created in the image of God, that has nothing to do with truth claims about whose religion is more correct than another uh, and the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, you create space for an employee to talk about the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ if you're a faith-friendly company. And if you take the ostrich or clampdown kind of approach, you don't allow space for that because you're not allowed to do it. But equally, I uh, also create space for my Muslim friend to tell me his story, and my Jewish friend, and my Buddhist friend, and my New Age friend. And then we have interesting conversations. So I think it's actually safe, respectful, and freeing. It's not stifling.
0: Michael, could I persuade you to weigh in on that question?
3: Yeah, no, sure. I'm, you can't, it's very hard to talk to someone who you don't understand. So if you get them talking to you and you create an atmosphere where they're willing to talk, you actually understand who they are and what they're saying. So, I mean, let's even take if you've got a rabid atheist. Um, If you're in a situation where they're willing to open up and talk with you and engage with you, you can pick up on the language and everything else they're saying and you're thinking, okay, this is where you're misunderstanding me and this is, and so on. And then that gives you then a basis to really meaningfully engage. Otherwise, all you can simply do is shout at them. So, um, and I think we maybe tried a lot of that. I think especially maybe in the context of North America, I love the the words of O'Connor, the poet here, who said the trouble, she was talking, I think, specifically about the South. She said the trouble of the South is it's Christ-haunted, not Christ-centered. And I think one of the problems we have now is there's a lot of, ev- basically, evangelical nominalism in North America. So you may even think you have evangelicals around you, but if you were to really talk to them, that's just their faith tradition. They've got evangelical language. There's no reality of Christ there. Um, and they're often scared to talk because they think, oh, that'll be outed and then, you know... Um, I might lose my respect or my position with this particular company. And if that's true, you're just stopping them talking to you, telling you where they are so that you can actually share. So I'm I'm a great believer in the fact that if you've got competing worldviews out there, then the truth is going to, you know, it will always be the strongest. That doesn't mean that people will accept it and will receive it. Um, But what, what have we got to fear if this is true? So... If you look at academic history, I mean, I'm, I think Princeton's got rid of its original motto. I know Harvard has. Oxford University, which was founded about 1,000 years ago, we've kept our motto. Our university motto, we have a shield. Okay? And it's interesting. If you go to the university website, they say, we have no idea where this imagery comes from. But it's a shield. With seven, uh, it's a book, open book, with seven seals three crowns above it, and the words Dominus Illuminati Mea," the Lord is my light, written on it. But bizarrely, they can't figure seven, out where seven that... No, no kidding. Seven seals, Seven seals, down that? the side of the book. Uh, no idea where that could have come from. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, but the whole idea of academia, the reason why Christians founded all these great universities, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge and where we planted out, obviously, the newer universities like Harvard and Princeton and so on. Uh, I I, I was Um, waiting for that, but go um, ahead. Um, Is that the whole premise of the academic was, this is true, this is real, we have nothing to fear from questions. We have nothing to fear from challenges, we have nothing to fear from difficulties. So bring all those difficult questions and so on, and that will just push us deeper. Um, so I think we have to recover that confidence as Christians. I think we're so much on the back foot. that makes sense? We're scared. We're terrified. So when we do training in corporate settings, we normally say, look, what are the questions if you were a Christian you would not want to be asked? Okay, what are the questions that will get you praying for the second coming because Armageddon would be preferable to having someone ask you that question in the lunch break? And then let's start there. Let's equip you to deal with that. Um, to try to re- and I think we have to recover our public voice and recover our public confidence And trying to shut everything else down or whatever, that's simply not going to help. That tells people that you're nervous of that or you're scared of that. Well, why are we nervous and and scared of that Um, if what we have to say is true and real? So let's just be open. Um, And I think people are really surprised um, uh, often. And it gives us a hearing. I can remember debating with some secularists on TV. And they said, well, you go to an Anglican church, right? You had your babies baptized. And we said, no. No. And it was really funny. She said, I'm a secularist. My grandmother, my mother was a secularist. My grandmother was a secularist. My children were all secularists. And all my grandchildren, through every sign, have also been secular atheists. And she said, and you had your children baptized. And I, and whatever. And I said, actually, it's different for me. My parents were atheists. I haven't had my children baptized. I became a Christian, and they have to make their own decision. I said, I think we should respond, and make these decisions on the basis of truth rather than family tradition. And <laughs> she was really upset by that answer. Um, <laughs> but but that, that, that's it. So let's not be scared about that. Um, you know, uh, we we have nothing to nothing to fear. Um, uh, so I think we have to overcome that, maybe, um, and just say, look, it's always been like that. And Christianity was born in a culture of competing worldviews. Mm-hmm. The early Christians had to deal with animism and spiritism and the Greco-Roman tradition and the Ro- um, and so on. These were all anti-Christian, and that's the go- So the gospel was born in a pluralistic context. It was spread in a pluralistic context, preached and so you know. And they, they did an okay job. Excellent. Paul okay. was almost as good as me.
0: <laughs> I see that the lines are not too long at the microphones, yet You scared so. everybody off. Oh, here's one. <laughs> um, I work in a non traditional workplace, so either I'm telecommuting or I'm traveling.
2: So I'll get three, four cities a week. It seems to me like there might be some special things we need to take into into account. I was curious if you had any resources that talk to those type of people, or if you have any thoughts on your own. How do you how do you do evangelism in a workplace that's
3: in three, four cities a week or never the same place two days in a row anyway? Okay. Well, I think there are some really personal questions which are maybe, I mean, Catherine and David can weigh in too just about how you keep your own life pure when you're living with that kind of pressure because that brings a whole social, spiritual dynamic that's very, very, you know, it can be very difficult. Um, I... Um, Uh, In terms of when you're in that kind of setting, what that basically means is I'm taking that you're often in and out of an awful lot of different places. Um, And so you're only there very, very briefly. Um, Now, the reason why I think the whole thing about spiritual condition is very important is um, Christ has to be seen somehow in us. Um, The greatest compliments I ever received, the ones that make me think, thank you, Lord, that was so encouraging is, you know, I was at a conference, I was speaking in a Muslim country a short while ago and someone said, while you were speaking, I could see this light in you. What's that light? And I said, well, that's the light Christ gives every believer. Would you like to, to receive it? Um, and when something like that happens, that makes me think, Lord, thank you for that. That's really affirming. That's really, Lord, may that be true. Uh, may that be seen in me. And um, and I think what David was saying earlier about mirrors actually then becomes really important because what we're not very good at seeing that ourselves. We also need Christians to tell us actually when that light isn't simply dim, but maybe was like put out a couple of years ago, but somehow you know the road the show seems to keep going. We need people to challenge us on that. So um, that's why I was saying that you. May, I think the other part of this is very important because I think whatever opportunities you have will come because of the fact that even though you were only there for half an hour, an hour, half a day, you know the way you treated people, how you were there. That is what's going to open and generate the conversations. And as a matter of fact, very interestingly, the phrase that I often – passage I get asked to speak from most as an apologist, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, starts off by saying, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, because of the lordship of Christ in life, because of how you're living, because of your literal, you know, practical, ethical witness, how you engage with work, how you enjoy your work – um, you know the other three circles that David was talking about. That actually becomes the springboard for people to start talking with you. That opens up the door for evangelism. So, interestingly enough, my suggestion to you would be: look at those three circles first. You may well then find the fourth one, the evangelism one. That will just happen very naturally.
0: Mm-hmm. Catherine, have you uh, had any experience with working with people who, who work in non-traditional workplaces where they don't have a, a fixed set of coworkers?
1: We have a lot of those everywhere, I guess these days, and I certainly did a lot of that traveling myself and um, I think that there's sort of two sides of that one is how do you how do you keep a community of faith around you to um, inspire you to nurture you to hold you accountable, and then um, what in fact is your mission field of all the many that you maybe just passed through um, Briefly, as opposed to can sink deeply into in terms of relationships, so on the latter, I think i would I would pray about it you know god, God show me of these constituencies that I touch what what are you sending me to, and I think the opportunities sort of pop up when you do that on the first we um, I certainly struggled under that um, we 've got lots of people that are both different town every day or in a different town for an eight-month run of a production or something like that. Um, I think in our mobile culture, it's really helpful for us to know churches in other parts of the country that we can at least rest in while we're there, and of course, New York City, we have a lot of that, and we have a lot of people come to even my monthly vocation group programs that are just passing through, and have found it on the internet and, and are just tapping in. Um, and we, I just got a story from a neighbor um, last week of um, they had a guy in their weekly fellowship group that um, was stationed in San Francisco for a while and was really. Um, his marriage was suffering seriously, and the fellowship group came together and challenged him and so The wife was making them mo- the rest of the group aware of it and It appears that there 's been an intervention with love and grace that 's going to save that marriage i mean it 's too soon to tell, but I think that it's um, it, it seems like there 's something broken in the lives, the demands in our lives that require us not to be able to be around people enough to have community and have relationships. But in that brokenness, God's going to point us to some ways that we can be little, find little pieces of redemption or His power in the midst of it. And because um, we can't turn back the clock, we can't change it, but we do need something different than the life you're living, and I've lived for a long time in my career as well. So I appreciate the question.
2: Okay. Can I chime in just a quick thought? Sure. Uh, and it's partly the question also of this ethically fresh, which is a part of the question that just asked, how do you stay ethically fresh, particularly if you're uh, traveling all the time or in solo work environments? One, t- one idea I heard from uh, a guy in Texas that I now uh, do most of the time. I don't always remember, but I, I, just, I loved it. He said whenever he goes into a hotel, he's always on the road, whenever he goes into the hotel room and he checks in goes up to his room, the very first thing, even if he has a suit on, the very first thing he does, he puts his bag and closes the door and he gets on his knees, physically on his knees, and sometimes these are dirty carpets, but gets on his knees and he prays that God will protect him in this space for whoever's been there before and whoever will come, that he'll be protected in that space and that he won't misuse that privacy. And he's fully aware of Internet porn, TV cable porn, uh, going down to the bar, all the stuff we all know that we can get caught up in. And he prays to sanctify that space for his duration. But I love how he also wants to claim it back from what's happened there before and what might happen in the future. So that's one ethically tip, uh, fresh, uh, staying ethically fresh tip if you're on the road a lot. Uh, And the other one, which I don't do, but a friend of mine does, is uh, we all have various passwords that we use for the various systems we sign into. And he now, instead of using uh, friends' names and stuff, he takes favorite biblical verses. (laughs) <laughs> John 3.16, just to pull it out of the air or whatever your verse is and that's now what he uses and he has fun because he changes different passwords like we all should do from time to time and he'll also change his verses therefore and some, if he didn't know them, he'll memorize them or if he heard something in a sermon that Sunday, he'll plug it in so it's another tip and every time you're typing it in like, oh wow, the Bible, God, that's right, this verse
0: Good Let's got another question
4: um, Add a couple of uh, things that might be related to each other, one is can you speak a little bit about um, since career and work is such a central part of our lives about christian 's response to the loss of a job unintentionally um, when is it not my calling anymore just because someone else decided it wasn't mm-hmm. and I think in In times like these, you know, even when people haven't directly experienced it, there is an underlying fear of it. The second thing is when we call it an end on our own, um, retirement. Um, And not so much about what to do with retirement, but I think a lot of us work toward retirement. That's the end goal, is retirement. And um, I just give some comments on that. Uh, I also like to ingratiate myself to Michael by saying my ancestors were loyalists so we're not responsible for this <laughs> continuing rebellion. Hallelujah. <laughs> All right.
0: So Christian response to job loss, job termination and uh, some thoughts about retirement as a as a goal.
1: Yeah, I think I've watched my retirement move back ten or fifteen yeah. years Just this Just in the week. last week, right? <laughs> and I, um, you know, I tell myself I'm working f- for God's glory in the day, but when the truth came and I watched it go lower and lower and lower and lower, oh yeah, I was so you're really. You of those miners that, that.
2: Golden your spiritual peace, inner peace. Yeah, yes, yeah,
1: yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, God may have a different plan, <laughs> and um, you know. We may be the people that he wants to carry it out in terms of that. I think that um, I'm going to be hitting that really, really hard in our ministry the next two months. Um, I know law firms have already gone shut down completely. Obviously, banks have been taken over. People know they're going to be laid off. I haven't run across too many yet laid off. Um, Most of of my people are under 35, so they've got, um, maybe they don't have any assets, but they will get employed in some way again. But dealing with the um, sense of identity in their work, I think is, um, it's an opportunity and it's a challenge. One is I think that we all, God gave us that identity in our work, so... The idea of doing something useful with our lives and with the experience he's given us is part of who we are. So my thought is we have to deploy the work of our hearts and our hands and our minds immediately to something else, even if we don't get paid for it for some period of time. We're just made to contribute and to work and we have to keep that up to keep our identity in him as people working in his image. and. The area where you might, in fact, be being called to a vocation that isn't the one you trained for or isn't the one you have experience for, and you might, in fact, have to start at the bottom again. Um, you know, I, I think my dad has been my biggest inspiration there. He, he moved up the ladder and then would lose his job. He lost his job the first time, I think, at 50, and then another time around 56. Devastating, you know, at that stage in a career. And um, he was embarrassed that his children were seeing him in that position. And he's a a Christian man, but it was definitely challenging the depths of his faith. But I've told him subsequently, and I've gone through seasons like that as well, um, that was the best lesson he could have given me, how he stewarded himself and tried to honor God during those times of being out of work when I knew his identity was just smashed. But he... He hung in there, and he gave me so many great lessons during that time. So I, I guess it depends on, you know, what if you're older and you're hit this time, help those that are younger and have not had any good models to go through that. And, um, you know, we're, hopefully we are robust enough of an economy that we all will get something and not be in dire need. But if we are in need, we have to help each other Deeply.
0: Michael or David, you want to weigh in on that, or thoughts about uh, retirement as a as a goal?
2: Well, I just say a footnote. I think it's powerful the the story you tell, Catherine, um, and your questions are wonderful on whether of your own choice or not uh, the ending of one's job. Uh, if I were to, I'd throw up maybe go back and read Ecclesiastes, wonderful book talking about seasons and seasons and times, um, uh, and then filter that through the season that you're entering, whether it's a season you chose of your own volition or whether it was one thrust upon you. And as part of that, I would, if you haven't already, begin thinking about retirement um, as as a job, too. And it will have its own pressures and its own stresses and its own emptiness and its own, you may have a little bit fewer office politics <laughs> based on your home life, I don't know, but no. Just <laughs> kidding. Uh, but... But think about that as a job, too, that you approach with a certain sense of purpose and intentionality, that that's not meant just to be coasting and golf time. I mean, do some of that for sure. Take the guess, the foot off the pedal a little bit. But God will still have purpose for, for you in that. It may take a while to figure it out, but um, go at it with the same way you went after your, your, your day job, now your career.
3: I mean, as, as someone, I, I I mean, up until fairly recently, a couple of years ago, I used to give lectures in the big investment banks on we record systemic risk to financial markets, which is, could the whole thing go down the, the tubes? So as an expert, let me try and give you a few words of encouragement. Um, the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned off. Um, so... As a matter of fact, even while I was here, I was praying about the message I'll be preaching here tomorrow. Because I've, I've sent um, some questions and a passage, which will be printed tomorrow. And given the way things are going, I'm just really wondering whether um, maybe I should try to address what's currently happening from as a Christian um, and bring the gospel into that. Because I think the gospel touches every single area of life, um, including what's happening right now. Um, I'm not. A, I don't really like the idea of retire retirement. I, I mean. I think you can understand that ultimately in terms of you retire from life eventually um, and you go into a new life. um, But so long as we're here, there's a reason why God wants us here. Um, So the biblical thing seems to be we should desire to be with God. It's better to go to be with him. But so long as we're here, there's also a reason why we should be here. So I think at times it's hard to discern that and it's hard to figure it out. And obviously there are stages. And the the process you're talking about losing your job, our identities are so wrapped up in our work and our sense of worth is that when you do lose it, the first thing you normally experience is worthlessness. Um, And even the mother who asked the question, it's not uncommon for women who've raised children, poured their life into them when they suddenly all disappear off to college. It's not unusual to go through a time of crisis thinking my whole identity has been wrapped up with school runs and everything else now. You know, who am I? What worth am I? And so on. Um, And we very easily um, uh, get um, sucked into that. And I think the difficulty is just trying to keep the balance of delighting in what you do but knowing who you are in God. And as opposed to to defining yourself on the basis of what you do and you know, we often reverse those two. We get them the wrong, wrong way around. It's just a question of trying to – and uh, when I, that sounds simple. The trouble is a lot of biblical things, they are gloriously simple to get hold of. Um, it's living them out that's just difficult. Um, and so I think whatever walk of life um, you're going through, and it may well be economically, um, we it is possible we could see something that we thought maybe we would not see for a very, very, very long time. Um, And, you know, I I had a phone call from my parents most unexpectedly. My father had his whole life savings in a bank that's just been wiped off the face of the earth. Mm. So he has no idea. Um, He was just about to retire. So, um, you know, I think these will be, you know, there are going to be some interesting and difficult times ahead. And I was telling Catherine, we were talking earlier, and I said I'm going to be visiting my brother in New York. Um, He's head of global banking for Goldman Sachs. And I can remember, you know, up until two weeks ago, I used to tell people that, and they used to go, wow. You know, can I meet him? Now, you know, it's like, you know, Catherine, you know, she went, oh, dear, I'm so sorry. Is he okay? Um, and, um, you know, and, and that's in two weeks that's happened. Two to three weeks. So, um, uh, you know, we may have, and I, but I think what, what that may do is it may force us. And as Christians, we mustn't fool ourselves. We, we ourselves get so often wrapped up. Our sense of worth comes from what we do very often. Um, we say that money isn't important, but actually, I mean, in England, I make a joke that the, you know, Christians in England, we hold on to our pound coins so tight, we make the queen cry. Because you know, everyone's got a you know, little picture of the queen on it. Um, but it so, and I think sometimes what happens in those times is it, it gives a spiritual reality check. Um, and even C.S. Lewis, writing during the Second World War, he said, you know, in the past, he said, our early church fathers would welcome times like this. Because it would challenge our attachment to this world. And challenge the way we thought about this world and what we're trying to build on this world and help us understand whom we're serving and why we're here. Um, And maybe we're going to go through another one of those times. Um, But that doesn't necessarily have to make us spiritually weaker. It may strangely actually make us stronger. Mm -hmm. Question?
5: I I apologize, and I think I'm jumping in front, but while we're on this topic, I'm curious, (laughs) specifically related to to this financial thing that happens to be the uh, vocation that I'm in talk about that, if you can, a little bit deeper and give some thoughts. Um, whether it is the notion of retirement, or David, you made the comment that most co- corporations create products or services. Some of what's come into light, and perhaps um, getting a little more color given our political environment right now, is that there may not be products or services actually created out of Wall Street. It's a bunch of these, these credit default swaps and things like that to derivatives. What are they really for? It's an interesting time to, I think, for us to be kind of salt and light in the world to facilitate questions or conversations that might not otherwise be had um, is a bunch of people are having their world rocked a little bit by, am I going to be able to retire? Is that really consistent with the biblical worldview? And are we really creating anything as an economy? I mean, certainly Tyson foods does, but what about these credit default swaps and all these others? Sure. It's all over the news.
2: I'll just nibble at that that part of the question um, and see what my colleagues have to say uh, about are we creating anything of value with these credit swaps and other uh, structured finance in- instruments. Um, the answer is uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, uh, take, the, uh, uh, I mentioned this at the uh, Nabil's restaurant the other day at the, the business lunch on uh, Friday, I think it was, lost track of when we are, and uh, a banker asked the question about the current situation. He said, what did I think of it? And I said, at root, I think it's an ethical problem, uh, that if I follow the thread through the process and uh, um, my read of it is that it, it started with, uh, uh, at, at, at two ends. One was an ethical issue of mortgage brokers being financially incented to sell people mortgages that they, in many cases, could not afford. And they couldn't care less about the fact that the client couldn't afford it because they were going to package it in some securitized instrument and repackage it and repackage it and send it off to some clever MBA or PhD who works for XYZ Bank who then, as we know, created all these uh, uh, instruments that you can't even unwind and figure out anymore. But it started with someone selling something that he knew the buyer couldn't afford. Now, to me, that's a moral issue. That's an ethical issue. Uh, And that person was receiving bonuses for doing that. And all the structured finance people were receiving bonuses and lots of handsome money for packaging those instruments and selling them on. And everyone convinced themselves there was no risk. Now the positive moral side of that is many people who, because of bad credit history or just being at the low end of the economic totem pole, had a chance for the first time ever to um, have equity in a home. And frankly, that was a gift that they weren't people of privilege and they got a shot at, at, at the American dream. The, the bad news is sometimes that the people were given or pushed into those situations who frankly could not and should not have afforded. So like a lot of tools, it could be used for good or for evil, for good or for bad um, and that clearly, that clearly went on in this situation. The other, at a macro level, so I think that was the front end of the coal face where the front end problem happened. And then in the middle, it got misunderstood and ignored. Um, and at, at a government policy level, Fannie Mae, Fannie Mac policy essentially is we want everybody to own a home, and we're going to ignore all common sense banking rules and ratios, and uh, we're going to open the floodgates for everyone to have credit. I mean, that, that was a macro policy decision, uh, which then all the smart, clever bankers figured out how to leverage and exploit. So I, I don't want to overly condemn the idea of creative instruments uh, because they can provide liquidity and opportunities for people and organizations, uh, but they can quickly, like so many healthy good things, be misused. Ethical issue to me, ethical problem.
1: As Christians, we may need to become far more economists than we ever wanted to be, just to. Um, to be people that think thoughtfully about how our world runs and be able to uh, be a voice in um, how it might be able to run better for the common good so to the extent that um, there's going to be some rebuilding I think that there's going to be lots of discussions it's going to be really hard for most of us to weigh in on those if we don't sort of dig in and try to make become students of what's being written now Um, I think what one of the issues that we're going to face is if there's not a cooperative for the common good um, r- arrangements across financial institutions, um, if, it, if there's an, a tone more of um, when you die, I'll get to eat up your spoils um, kind of a thing, um, then the law will have to come in, and it will have to be regulated from uh, from a legal perspective so it 's kind of like in every other area if we can 't sort of um, seek the common good in our own personal ethical behavior, then the law has to come in and make sure that we we seek the common good and you know I think the, I think there 's going to be a lot of dialogue about that, and I think we should be a, we should have a, a worldview perspective on it we should be a significant voice um, I think there's some reformed thinkers out there that have the most to offer in that arena and we're going to put them all on our website so you can look it up and read it if you're interested
2: Great.
3: Yeah. I, I mean I agree with everything that's gone through I think the ethical issues that both David and Catherine have picked up on are, are vital um, as I say, I'm, I'm very tempted to change my sermon to preach about this tomorrow because I think it is such a huge issue and it's going to affect so many lives. Um, um, but it, it, the reason why it is an ethical issue is, is <coughs> there are only two sources for ethics. Actually, this came up when I was speaking at Berkeley about uh, three, four days ago where they said, look, what's wrong with evolutionary ethics? If evolutionary ethics is correct, then survival of the fittest reigns. So Professor John Gray, who is the best-selling academic mind in Europe uh, right now, um, he has argued, look, we know evolution to be true. We know the idea of God to be false. And the trouble with humanism is it's basically Christianity in secular dress. And the the cardinal area of Christianity is it believes there's something special about human life. There's dignity and there are human rights, and that's a load of rubbish. It's a dog-or-eat-dog world out there, and it's survival of the fittest. And therefore, if we're going to be consistent and live with what we know to be scientific truth, we need to employ that ethic in our society. And as Western economies, we're largely more militarily powerful than everyone else. So why not we're getting on there, eliminating our enemies, and you know, making sure everyone serves us? Now, the fact that he's a best-selling academic endorsed by people like Will Self and all kinds of really self-help gurus around the world, to me, is amazing. Um, now, the trouble is, is when you translate that into the financial world, what has happened is... Um, uh, the way I try to illustrate it is this. is Up until the 1960s, your dollars were convertible into gold. And on an English pound, it would say, promise to pay the bearer five pounds or ten pounds. Ten pounds of what? Well, ten pounds of what was sterling silver. In other words, there was a commodity behind it. That's what anchored its value. Now, I'm not advocating a return to the gold standard, but what happened is, obviously, that system was abandoned. No one gave any thought to what that actually may truly mean. Now, here's the nearest analogy. Many of you as Christians are going to struggle to relate to this, apart from those of you who are prepared to be honest about what you actually do. But imagine that you're playing poker, and um, um, you walked into a casino, and you handed over your money, and they give you a pile of chips. Okay? And you sit down at the table, and you're playing the game with everybody else. And um, you can buy food with the chips. You can buy drinks. You can tip the waitress. You can even pay for your hotel room. Okay, and you're there, and after a certain amount of time, several you months. You seem
2: like you have a lot of experience in this. Um, I, I, I hadn't, wasn't aware of that.
3: Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you some tips afterwards. Um, um, then imagine, after a couple of months, the casino announces it's, con- it's suspending the convertibility of the chips into dollars. Okay? But everyone keeps playing. Now, what do those chips represent? Now, the interesting thing at the moment within economics is economics cannot define the subject of its own academic study. No one can define what is money. There is no answer to that question. Now, when you buy into that as an economic system, you introduce what's called a divorce from reality, which is the talk I'm thinking of giving tomorrow. The trouble with that system is that system actually continues to work so long as it's actually within a Judeo-Christian framework of ethics. The potential for abuse within that system is horrendous. Now, interestingly, Israel was an agricultural co- o- economy, and it's fascinating the number of times God says in the Old Testament he abhors inaccurate weights and measures. The reason why he abhors them is the very unit of measurement and value within that economy, if itself became corrupt, would corrupt everything else. Now, we've now drawn a parallel. Okay? So the reason why we're having such a sudden and rapid collapse is that most money these days is actually credit. Real money doesn't actually exist. So, whatever, it's a very small amount. Now, I'm not against what's called leveraging or gearing, and derivatives are actually really ideally something there to facilitate trade, to transfer risk. They can be something which are amazingly useful and beneficial. The reason we now find ourselves in is we haven't been bold enough to ask ourselves these questions. Now, interestingly, um, when there were such things as investment banks, and I'd be asked to give often this whole series of days of talks on systemic risk to financial markets, and I would talk about, okay, we have a problem, we can't define our thing. This is what deriv- how derivatives are affecting money markets. This has left us with this problem of money. This is why it makes the whole thing so fragile. Whenever I'd give those presentations, it would be very interesting. I can't name any names, but I can remember being in one particular country with the head of risk for the central bank of that country, um, so the equivalent of, your, of the Federal Reserve, and also with the head of risk for one of the big five investment banks of the world, one on the top. And um, at the end of a whole day's presentation, the central banker stood up and he said, I don't think you understand this at all. I think you've grossly overstated the problem. You've simplified the nature of it. And he walked out, said that publicly. The head of risk for this particular bank, which has some of the biggest private clients in the whole world, took me aside and he said, every night I lay awake, terrified by what you have described, because that's it. He said, we're all playing the game and none of us can walk away from the table. So it's not that... They didn't see it coming. I think it's true to say that governments, by and large, didn't see it coming because it wasn't their day-to-day trade. Those who were involved in the day-to-day, they could see it. No one could see how they could get out of it. Um, And so that's part of the reason why. Now, I think what that goes to show is that, actually, we often phrase the question, can I afford to be moral in the wrong way? We think, look, the cost of compliance is high, and it is true. If you're a business and you want to adopt a moral position, I could probably come into your business and cost it for you. But although the cost of compliance is high, the cost of failure is catastrophic. It was catastrophic for WorldCom and Enron, it was catastrophic for Arthur Anderson, and it's catastrophic for some of these financial institutions, and it may even prove to be catastrophic for our entire financial system. So it raises some some very, very deep challenges. But the beauty of this is, I think, um, is that it's going to raise some very interesting questions. Because when you look at what the Bible has to teach and say about this, and this is where I think evangelism often makes a lot of sense. So I, I, I also want to stop this because I don't want to preempt what I may say tomorrow. But, so you have to come back. Okay? And if you can't come back, just slip me a couple of hundred quality on the side and I'll tell you. Um, is is if, you took, if you listen very carefully to what David said today and Catherine. Okay, the reason why David and Catherine could both actually be excellent evangelists in the workplace, even though I don't know if they ever do that is the way to do evangelism in the workplace is that I honestly believe that the scripture, the gospel, makes sense of the whole world. Okay? It's the only meaningful interpretive paradigm. Which means you could take what David has done, you could go into any workplace, you could put up those four circles apart from the fourth one, and you could say, look, we have to answer this question, we have to answer this question, we have to answer this question, and all of us are actually going to be involved in giving expression to how we think in what the worldview that informs all of this. As a Christian, the reason how I make sense of these four circles is this. It's amazing if you're prepared to do that, how, how people respond. And I actually think that's now the kind of evangelism that we, we desperately need. That's the kind of evangelism I engaged in. You step in and you say, look, this, here's the problem. Here are the questions. And actually this, isn't it interesting? Jesus said this, he said that, and it said that. To me, it makes sense of all it. That. That's why I'm a Christian. Um, it's amazing to see what the impact of that is. And I think this particular instance is going to open up those kinds of opportunities. Personally, I'm very excited by it. Um, I think getting out of it is not going to be easy. And I wish it was short-term, and it's definitely the case that if you were planning to retire in the next one to two years, then you're in the most difficult situation uh, right now. If you were planning to retire in 25 to 30 years, actually, this will be a distant memory by this has come. So... um, but that's going to raise questions, and I think how Christians respond. And I'll, I'll just tell you one story. I went to New York for the first time last year. I've never been. It's a city of sin. It's going to be judged by God, and all the people who are there are going to be destroyed. Right things. So, I, so I've been very careful about going for obvious reasons. And, um, and I'm glad you've been getting my letters. I've been sending them every week faithfully now for the last 10 years or so. <laughs> so but it's just good to know you're reading them. I'm just, you know, I'm encouraged by that. Um, he changes well, his handwriting. <laughs> um, When I was there, we went up, I think it's the Rockefeller Center, and there was these big boards about J.D. Rockefeller. And I didn't know the story about him at all, and he seems to have been a very flawed individual by all accounts of other things I've read about him, including people like J.P. Morgan, who was a believer with some interesting character traits. Um, uh, To say the least, someone said that like they actually knew him. But yeah, I think if you know the story. What was amazing was during the Great Depression... A lot of those huge skyscrapers were built. Rockefeller was building them for the simple purpose of keeping several hundred thousand construction workers in business. Okay, He had the cash. He had the money. There was a depression on. There was no demand for that space. There was no need for that space. Nobody wanted it. But by employing an army, hundreds of thousands of construction workers, he kept hundreds of thousands of people in business, hundreds of thousands of people putting dinner on the table, hundreds of thousands of people who could have other people who lived next door to them Okay, who couldn't feed their own families. And this is really where we need to have this huge revolution in our theology for work. It's not just about how theology informs our work. We have to understand that when God created this planet, he told us to work. The first thing he did was give Adam and Eve jobs. So it's somehow integral to the whole creation process, the whole reason why we were brought here. And that, I think there's something glorious in that story. And it may well be that one or two guys in this room, you may be in that position over the next years to come. Okay, where you're actually able to do that. And I think the impact and the testimony of that could be immense and it could be enormous. So let's also look maybe for the, sh- the opportunity to shine as lights. Even as the darkness gets di- darker, the lights will shine brighter.
0: Got a question up front here? No, I just want to talk about a personal level. <laughs> um, I would like you to speak to... I work in a very technical profession, so, but as I've gotten older, I've really realized the... the um, value in relationships and teams, but how do you balance the technical aspects and actually getting the work done with the relationships? How do you you keep your life in balance between sitting at your computer and never looking up and not getting your computer work done because you're helping someone else, either professionally or personally? How do you balance that? So balancing the technical and the relational. Catherine, that sounds like a Catherine, question to me.
1: I don't know. You know, I was the boss. I just uh, get the work done. Uh, <laughs> do that personal relationship stuff after hours. Uh, <laughs>
3: do you see why I was sending her those letters? You see, no, was anyway.
1: That was in California. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I mean, the biggest shift from working in a tech company to working in a church has been just that and um, everybody's so interested in all this relationship stuff and it's hard for me not to think it's a sinkhole some of the time and, you know, I'm a to-do list person I'm, I'm Martha and there's people out there being Mary's and um, I'm like how much mary do you have to do here can we get something done so, <laughs> it um, I, I take that story to heart of Mary and Martha, but I also um, I think that we're I, I do I think we're we're all um, guilty of doing what we feel like doing ex- without a bigger picture of what the job needs to be at the time, and it could be that your technical work on the screen and God's. Economy has more impact on the kingdom than an interaction with somebody else in the workforce, or it could be totally the other way around. And I—that's a discernment question, a, a wisdom question. In general, I think there's no question our world is too individualistic at the at the moment, and our churches, even in, our, in churches where. We're out for ourselves far more than we're out for each other. So, as a general admonition to how do we move from being individualistically driven—my uh, to-do list, my goals, my security, financial security—to being more concerned about the whole? I think that's a really important move. Um, but on the other hand, I think that the you know it's it's some t- some of my worst employees were Christians who. Felt like their calling to the work was relationships, and I was like, I'm not paying you for that. I, I, in fact, have a person I pay for relationships. They're at the front desk, or I have, you're actually paid to get this task done, and um, I'm gonna try to give you a reasonable lifestyle so that you could do all these other things. So that's a very, um, sorry, go discern it on an on, on a individual yeah. case basis, but acknowledgement of the situation that you're. Out there. I usually
2: I disagree with you, but I, I mean I agree with you, but I I think I, I would take a different slant on that. That I think it's a both end and we need to figure out how we're individually wired. Some of us are tilt towards the to-do list task orientation and some tilt towards the human relations. Uh, And some jobs require more of one skill than another. But even in heavily task-driven environments, how we do that and the relational skills we make can make the difference between it being a smooth, flowing system where everyone does their technical piece well or just a really disgusting, toxic system where everyone is doing a minimal amount to get by. Um, story. I do agree with that. Yeah, and so I guess I just want to, I, I, I wouldn't see it as an either-or, it's a both-and, recognizing what our strength is and what the job requirements. A, a quick story, uh, a friend, uh, uh, it's called Tom, uh, not his real name, uh, was the founder and CEO of a small uh, technology company, made a ton of money. He's out in uh, Fargo, North Dakota. It was a special coding uh, uh, for Windows, got patented, make a lot of, made a lot of money on it. Uh, and, and then he sold it to a Japanese company. They kept him for five years and still run it because of all of his knowledge. And market, knowing the clients and everybody, uh, and then at his retirement dinner. At his retirement dinner, um, everyone applauded his fine work and his great intelligence and his uh, uh, great mind. Uh, but he was a task. He was a taskmaster uh, and, and a numbers guy. Uh, and he said, "I drove home with that that night with my wife, and I started to cry." I said, "Why?" He said, "No one said how much they would miss me. They were kind of glad I was gone." So he regrouped a bit, uh, and with some of his capital, he bought, a, uh, of all things, a a, a, a short-haul trucking company with about, I think, 15 trucks and drivers. And he said, what I do now is once a week, he said, I didn't know the wives' or husbands' names of my employees. I didn't know anything about their hobbies, their kids. I didn't know any of that stuff. He said, once a week, I now drive with the truck drivers and do a route with them. Mm -hmm. And I intentionally don't look at the spreadsheets on Monday or the reports on the screen. And he said, my life is different. He said, frankly, I'm better at the task stuff anyway, because I was pretty good at it. But I have a, I have a better balance now. Um, so maybe, ma'am, I can't see now with the lights where you are, but uh, um, see if you could find ways to, uh, don't deny who you are, be good at your tasks. But, yeah, explore this relationship side.
0: Okay. Well, Mike? watch which is synchronized with atomic clocks in boulder colorado says that it is (laughs) three o'clock straight up and we want to respect your time we want to thank you first of all for sharing your time with us today and how about one more round of applause for our very fine panel and i wish i had something profound to leave you with but i think all the profundity is at the other end of the stage so i will just say thank you for coming and have a good day